This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Jason Gray, the Education Department's Chief Information Officer. Jason, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. So it's been more than a year since we last talked. Uh, it was October of 2018. We sat down and you had tons of plans, a lot going on. The big news probably came in January of 2019 when you guys replaced the old Educate contract with a set of new contracts, and that really got you going. So give me an update. Where, where have we been over the last year, and, and how, how, does, how is education department different today than it was when we last talked in 2018? It's been a very, very busy year. We have modernized our entire IT infrastructure, uh, whether it's from a hosting environment, from a network environment, from an endpoint uh, environment. We, we have transitioned and modernized all IT services that we have provided at the department here. So in January, we started with our printing transition that reduced our printer footprint by close to 56%, which changed the way we actually printed so that people could print to the cloud. And if I'm here in D.C. and I print something, if I'm on a regional visit to San Francisco, I can retrieve that. Uh, It's also helped us uh, avoid unnecessary prints or prints that we didn't need to. As of today, there's been over a million and a half print jobs that have not printed, which uh, saves on certainly paper, but toner, and then wear and tear and maintenance on the machines. So that is on the printing side. On the hosting environment uh, side, we started again in January transitioning uh, close to uh, 400 or over 450 terabytes of data from our old hosting environment to the new hosting environments. From a cost-saving standpoint, we went from $1.43 a gigabyte to $0.12 a gigabyte, and this year alone is close to $2 million in real savings. And just to to put a little context in terms of the amount of data, uh, if you took all of the the books in the Library of Congress, the equivalent of transition is 43.5 libraries of Congress we transitioned within four short months. Uh, so that was from a hosting standpoint. And then from uh, an endpoint standpoint and a laptop standpoint, uh, one of the uh, biggest challenges I received when I first got here was that we had a massive delay in terms of uh, the amount of time that it took to log in, between 20 and 40 minutes, uh, due to old technology, uh, hardware and software. As part of the modernization efforts, uh, we're using solid-state drives. We're also using uh, newer software products uh, and current software versions for office automation and uh, operating systems. We went from the 20 to 45-minute login time uh, to less than 50 seconds. From a cost-saving standpoint, that's, uh, you know, again, from a return in productivity, uh, that's over $20 million a year uh, just due to the uh, amount of uh, reduced time that it's taking to log in that was lost before. That's incredible, 20 to 45 minutes just to log in. I mean, you could turn your computer on, talk to all your employees, go get coffee and come back and still be waiting for it to log in. I mean, that must have been the most frustrating thing that you got as a CIO is, why is it taking so long to log in? It absolutely was frustrating. Part of it was because of the technology that we used at the time. Uh, Some of it was uh, near end of life. Uh, Some of the software configurations. uh, When I first got to the department, I stood up a weekly pulse check with all the regions to find out what was going on. We found some misconfigurations 
uh, where we were checking for Windows 10 compatibility, which is typical, but it was done every single day. We did reduce the uh, amount of login time to 12 to 15 minutes uh, after, shortly after I got here uh, due to some configuration changes and some software changes and some tools that we used to identify some of the challenges. But still, the, the transformation that this modernization effort has had has had a significant improvement in terms of the, of the productivity the department has as it relates to IT. And this is not an IT problem. I mean, this is a education department problem. I'm sure that the people in finance or the people in HR or the people in the mission areas are happy to get that time back. They're not waiting and waiting and waiting to get their job done. At the same time, if they're a meetings at 9 a.m., they don't have to make sure they get there at 8.15 just to make sure they're logged on to their computer. I mean, do, is, that, is that the discussion you're, you have been having with those folks saying something as simple as this change can really help the mission side, it's clear, it's, it's easy to understand. Absolutely. Uh, in the last uh, two months, I've gone to uh, four regional offices to get a sense. I've also met with all the assistant secretaries to talk about our modernization journey, as well as the impact as it relates to our system users and owners. It used to be every single week, I would go to a meeting and I would get a list of here are the, the impacts that IT is having on my ability to do my job. It is not that way anymore. Now I'm going to meetings, and as I mentioned during the regional office visits, uh, it is hearing about how fast the technology is and how it enables people to, to do more with the time that they have in the office. Something as simple as logging on a computer, it, it, it's a very similar. As people used to complain that you know, my email is not working, my, you know, the, the very basic stuff. If you get that stuff to work every single day, then... And the bigger problems, right, the actual mission area, IT, people have a little more patience with. But so walk me through the IT modernization plan. When we talked again back in 2018, you had a lot on your plate. Is your plate less full or is it full with different things now? Now it's, it's full with different things because uh, as we spoke uh, last time, uh, we completed a, a roadmap that is a, a five to eight year plan from a modernization standpoint. The first... Six months of that roadmap was actually what we've just been talking about. So I'm glad that we've actually achieved that. However, there's more, meaning that we're looking at doing web consolidation. We're looking at doing cloud consolidation. Uh, we're looking at automating manual processes to reduce errors and improve efficiency. The, the journey that we've had uh, over the last uh, six months from January to uh, the end of May, actually five months, it's been, uh, I've, when I've spoken to people about this, it's been, imagine renovating a house where you're removing all the electrical, you're removing all the plumbing, you're just gutting the house, all of the appliances. And then imagine doing that for a community of homes. And then imagine doing that across the nation where you've got, you know, 11 different areas that you're doing these communities of homes with thousands of users while the people are still living in those homes. That is literally what we have done, meaning that all of this modernization effort, all of this transition from a data standpoint and the application standpoint has been done while users are still needing uh, to use those hardware and software. So in terms of the future and uh, replacing or you know, continuing our modernization effort, we're looking at ways that we can rationalize from a systems and software portfolio standpoint. Some of the activities we've done is we have revamped and modernized our governance process in terms of how we're actually governing IT, 
not only to uh, strengthen and enhance our FATARA compliance, but also to make sure that we're spending taxpaying dollars efficiently and effectively. So as I mentioned, cloud consolidation has been something. We are 100% cloud, but I want to reduce the amount of cloud that we have, not necessarily from a cost per gigabyte standpoint because it's relatively the same, but the administrative overhead uh, is where I'm looking at so that we don't have to have as many contracting officer representatives as many project managers or cores. Plenty to catch up with you, and we'll definitely want to look forward. Let me back up. As you got started in January, how did you kind of prioritize what would go first? For me, just on the surface, it seems like get, make my computer log in faster. But you guys started with printing, but I mean, I know everything happens in parallel. It's not like you do one, then the other, and the other. But how did you prioritize? How did you decide what's the timeline to get you know, change printing, for instance? How did you know that would only take a month or, or a couple of weeks? A lot of it actually was, to your point, was done in parallel, uh, meaning the, the printing, the hosting, and the workstation, all of that was done in parallel. We started from a, a core services standpoint, meaning we started with hosting, meaning all of our core services from uh, authentication, Active Directory, uh, all of it, we started with that. So we wanted to make sure we had a solid foundation. And then printing went first because, uh, to be honest, it was probably going to be the, uh, the... You won't say easiest. I know that's what you want to say. But nothing's ever easy in IT, right? No. <laughs> yes, it, it's definitely the, uh, I guess, the easier lift. <laughs> so we started with printing. But, again, it was through communication. Prior to all of this, uh, me and my team met with, you know, the assistant secretaries. We briefed our modernization plan uh, to the secretary and deputy secretary uh, from a printing standpoint. When I went to our senior leaders meeting and I talked about printing, I wanted to let people know that, hey, you may get some complaints because we're reducing our printer footprint by more than half. I'm expecting people who will want their own personal printer. Uh, and the secretary's comment was people can go just a little bit further to get their print jobs and save the taxpayer money. So that type of support, same thing when we got to the workstations. The challenge was that in order to, from March to the end of May, we're talking about transitioning close to 5,000 devices that are spread not only in the D.C. area, but whether it's San Francisco, Seattle, New York, all over. That was a massive transition. And the, the concern was how do we coordinate and make sure that everyone is on site to turn their device in? And literally, it started from the top, uh, meeting with all the assistant secretaries, the secretary, and let them know that, oh, by the way, if you do not have these, your, your uh, staff turn their devices in by the end of May, we're going to brick those devices. I mean, we're going to make it so that they can't use them. Uh, and then, again, meeting with the secretary and senior leadership, the comment that was made is, okay, here's your warning. Make sure that those employees have something else to do if technology uh, isn't available because people didn't turn their device in. We had around 30 individuals who missed it for some reason or another, meaning people were on extended leave. There were perfectly valid reasons, but only 30. Uh, I, again, I can't help but think uh, and believe that the our telework policy – that has enabled us to be successful. There is no way we could have been able to transition these number of devices in this short amount of time it, given just a coordination. So, again, I'm just proud of where the team has taken us and look forward to the future. 
We need to take a quick break, but I got to ask the question: Those thirty people were their devices bricked? Absolutely, Absolutely. they they were. Good good answer. All right, let me take a quick break. My guest is Jason Gray, the Education Department's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm Jason Miller. My guest today, Jason Gray, the Education Department's Chief Information Officer. Jason, before break, we were talking a lot about the modernization strategy. You were just talking a little bit about the changes in desktops and, and, and laptops, and, and the, the 5,000 devices had to be upgraded. All but 30 people met their goal. You had to brick those 30, so good for you for living up to your word. But the bigger deal is not necessarily the, the, the hardware. It's really the software that's really making the big difference. Walk me through some of the changes you made from the software side. So it's actually both, but from a software side, some of the bigger changes, we transitioned off of Windows 7 into Windows 2010. And, and if you think about it, you know, Windows 7 is a quite uh, dated operating system. So that was one of the bigger changes that certainly sped things up a lot. Uh, we also uh, transitioned from Office 2010. And here we are in 2019, and we were using Office 2010. Now we're using Office 365, which we've been using for enterprise email since I've been at the department. Uh, But now we're using the whole suite of tools uh, that Microsoft offers. So there's that. On the hardware side, uh, you know, the equipment was newer. uh, It was faster from a processing standpoint. It was more memory. uh, In the old image, uh, 4 to 8 gigabytes of RAM, now 16 gigabytes standard. Uh, We also went from uh, disk drives uh, to solid-state drives, which was a significant improvement in terms of performance. The move to Office 365, the move to Windows 10, that's beneficial in many ways. I mean, I've heard from people's perspective that um, security is is a big difference. They also have heard from Windows 10, there's certain things you can do through Windows 10 that maybe you couldn't have done previously. Walk me through a little bit about the benefits you're starting to see just because you're on Windows 10 now. Patching, I think, is probably one of the biggest from a security standpoint and making sure that our systems are more secure. Vulnerability management, patch management uh, is is certainly one of the, the key benefits. From a 365 standpoint, one of the, one of the things we attempted to do uh, early on was transition from a storage standpoint. As I was mentioning, we were paying a lot for storage. And with our 365 implementation, it was, let's move to cheaper storage. Well, the challenge is we moved to SharePoint Online and thought, oh, here we go. It's a quick win. The challenge that we had is the hardware and software versions that we were using didn't allow the department to leverage the capabilities that uh, Office 365 provided. Now we can actually start leveraging those because, unfortunately, with the older version of uh, our operating system and our older version of uh, Microsoft Office, the capabilities just weren't there. So from a, a benefit standpoint, now we can leverage SharePoint Online. For storage, uh, which again I look at reducing the amount of storage that we're um, or price that we're spending on storage, and that's just incredible. I mean, when you talk about the the cost savings in storage, dollar forty three gigabyte to twelve cents. That much is. What was your reaction when when you started to look into this and someone said, "Oh, well, we can do it for." 99% less or whatever the, the percentage so, is. So that's a great question. When when I first actually got to the department, I had looked at uh, GSA's benchmarking as it relates to storage, and I thought, wow, why are we paying so much? Uh, again, we're talking about a, a decade-old IT service contract uh, that you know was set. It was, We knew that we were going to be recompeting the contract. So it was something I knew right away that I needed to tackle, 
one of the first things I started when I got to the department was uh, trying to shift some of that storage to, uh, you know, like a, a NAS or a SANS to, to get it off into cheaper storage. Uh, but you can only do so much when you're talking about, you know, 450 terabytes. From a cost standpoint, though, when I looked at we were spending close to or a little over $600,000 a month on storage. And when I saw the new bill of $55,000 a month storage, it, it was a much better picture. Now, the big question for me, of course, we'll come back to, uh, are you able to take that $545,000 savings? I did that math very quickly. I want you to point that out for a journalist. That's pretty quick. And put that back into mission, put that back into other things, or give it to your CFO and, and – you know, have them kind of re... re- we are able to, uh, I don't want to say repurpose, we have a, a, a very rigorous governance process that the department follows. Uh, so what will happen is that I'll go to our governance board uh, and has gone to our governance board on how we can leverage the, the funds. The good thing, as I mentioned earlier, is we have a five to eight year roadmap on where the department is going. So we already know from a priority standpoint on what we need to invest that money in. One of the things that we're looking at is we're really hoping uh, that Congress enables us to leverage a working capital fund. Uh, we've already made uh, the requests and we're you know, having conversations about that because I would love to leverage the Technology Modernization Fund uh, to, to bring about some of the additional uh, activities that we have and projects we have. You knew that was my next question, didn't you? <laughs> I was going to ask about TMF and, and the Working Capital Fund. Do you, in, the, in the meantime, do you guys what do you, what happens to the money? I mean, do you, are you able to keep it because it's already IT money, you know, money you're spending anyways, or is it is it a negotiation with the other parts of your agency? We have a uh, planning and investment uh, review working group uh, that actually is the the working body that puts together what the plans are for the funding. So as funding becomes available, either through cost savings or cost avoidance, uh, the money flows through that board, which feeds up to an investment review board, uh, which me and the deputy secretary co-chair, and then the decisions are made based on a priority on where we're going. So it's not like it's lost. It's just, it's it's, again, like everything else in life, what are your priorities and what what do we, what's, what's in the most need? So let's go to me. Have you been able to take advantage of some of that "quote unquote" extra money? I'm looking forward to that this year. Some of the the challenges that when we're in the middle of a transition, there's a lot of really good work that needs to happen. Whether it's from a cybersecurity standpoint, or just an operations standpoint, or a modernization standpoint. But because we were, to use an example of an old house, we were living in an old house, and yes, we know that there needs to be some modernization and renovation done to that. But what we wanted to do is wait until we got to the new house. As of the end of May, we are now in our new house, and now I look forward to uh, continuing the renovations that need to be made to make it better. You mentioned when you first got to education, you looked at GSA's benchmarks and saw, compared what you were paying for storage to everybody else. Was anyone else at your level? I mean, were, did you see any other high end that was over a dollar, over a dollar, almost a dollar and a half, or were you guys just so out of whack? I believe there was one other agency that was close, but whether it was just the department or even the other agency, uh, we were way out of sync with uh, what other agencies were paying for storage. One of the other metrics that I looked at when I got here was as it relates to help desk tickets. Uh, When I looked at the help desk tickets, I was really surprised because the Department of Education had the lowest cost per help desk ticket. And as a new CIO coming into the department, I thought, oh, great. 
uh, we've got a really good model here and things are good. Well, after looking under the covers, I realized that it was actually a really bad sign because when you're dealing with a firm fixed price uh, contract and you have a high number of tickets, uh, then it, it it artificially makes it seem like you're getting a good deal where the reality is we just had a lot of tickets. Fortunately, due to our modernization efforts, uh, we have made significant strides there. Just to give you some context, when we first started this journey, we had close to 2,000 tickets in our queue, uh, meaning that that was the backlog of tickets. With our modernization efforts, right now we're around <laughs> 250 uh, is around the average daily ticket count. So going from 2,000 down to around 250 or so, it, it's been a significant improvement. You bring up the help desk and the changes you've seen there, going from something to the effect of like over 2,000 tickets in the queue to about 250 tickets in the queue on average. Can you just talk a little bit about, has, has the help desk been modernized? Is it part of the modernization effort? Uh, absolutely. It, it is a part of and has been a part of it. Uh, I will say during the transition, it took a little bit, meaning I would have uh, appreciated a help desk that answered calls quicker. But the first couple of months were a bit bumpy, but you would expect after this massive transition to stabilize. Uh, we went from around five or so minutes uh, on average to the average speed to answer to now we're around 11, uh, less than 30 seconds, but we're around 11 seconds uh, is the average speed to answer. And then also, more importantly, we're tracking first call resolution uh, to make sure that, you know, people's uh, issues are being resolved as quickly and efficiently as possible. All right. Sounds like a good news story all around help desk and, and hosting. Let's uh, one other big accomplishment is the financial management system upgrade, something that a lot of agencies are facing. Walk me through the accomplishments there. That's again, I remember we talked last time you wanted to decouple it from your grant system and then modernize at the same time. One of the biggest challenges I faced actually walking into the department here is that our financial management system uh, was a version that was only supported through uh, extra support, <laughs> meaning it was uh, end of life. Uh, we had extra support at the time. Again, uh, a challenge that I faced coming on board. My understanding there was uh, a lot of reasons why. I know the uh, former leadership here pushed really hard to get approval. When I got into the department, I uh, realized that we needed to be able to upgrade this system uh, to the current version uh, of Oracle Financials, uh, pushed really hard, uh, working with uh, USSM and OMB to get approval, got approval for it, uh, started a two-year modernization journey to upgrade our financial management system uh, that finished in uh, November of last year, uh, which uh, this year was the first year we actually transitioned over to meaning we actually did year-end close, uh, finishing our, with this financial management version. And I look forward to our financial statement audit, uh, which will be coming out soon. All right, hopefully some good news there, and hopefully you can talk about it when we get closer. Uh, Jason, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can talk about the, the roadmap going forward in the next 6, 12, 18 months. My guest is Jason Gray, the Education Department CIO. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Jason Gray, the Education Department's Chief Information Officer. Jason, before break, we talked a lot about the last six months and all the accomplishments you guys have, have had over at the Education Department with IT modernization. 
let's look forward. Congratulations, you got that done. What's next, right? It's, we're, we're, what have you done for me lately is, I guess, the, the question I have to ask. And maybe let's start with cloud and, and the cloud sprawl. I think you, you mentioned to me last time we talked, you had three, four dozen, five dozen different cloud providers at education. And you said, it's great, but it's maybe too many. Not quite five dozen, but we had uh, 25 and have 25 cloud service providers uh, that are providing uh, cloud services to the department, which is too many. Again, not from a cost standpoint, because they're all relatively the same and moving from one to another isn't going to incur or or reduce costs. However, the administrative overhead is really the focus. So right now, the focus, you know, again, was transitioning to the new environments, uh, as we just spoke about. And then right after transition was stabilization. So to me, I was expecting three to six months to stabilize. We're just about six months into stabilization and things uh, are more mature and stable. Uh, So the next phase of our modernization journey is going to be focused really on uh, website consolidation, meaning for static sites that we have, let's start consolidating them into, you know, a smaller number of hosting environments. Same thing from a cloud standpoint. If we have 25 cloud service providers, which I know we do, we can actually start reducing the number of cloud service providers that we have. So that's going to be the next focus area. Uh, Another area I know that I've spoken about is automating our manual processes. As part of our assessment that we did uh, that finished in June of last year, Uh, We found and identified numerous manual processes that we have. It's looking at how can we use things like RPA and AI to uh, enhance those uh, processes and automate them, taking out kind of a manual process, in some cases transitioning, you know, data from one system over to another. There's a couple things you talk about there. Let Let me start with the cloud piece. 25 cloud providers, is that because... Office One bought, went to the cloud, and then Office Two went to the cloud, and Office One didn't talk to Office Two, and no one talked to the CIO. So are you then saying, if we're going to the cloud, here's the contracts or here's the set of services we will use, and if you need a, a different set of services, let's discuss? It actually started before I got to the department, and this is actually probably long before Fatara. At the time, it was, you know, it's very easy to acquire a cloud service. And what had happened in the past is, a principal office would go out. They need a cloud service. It's cheaper, faster to go and get it through a commercial provider. One of the first things I, I did when I got here uh, was to put out a memo uh, that mandates that the CIO is first right of refusal. So it directs all of the principal offices to uh, leverage OCIO as it relates to uh, cloud services and that has been uh, great. We have not had that issue. Everything, uh, another uh, effort that we have done, any sort of moderate or high system that we have, we recently this year have put out a memo identifying me as the authorizing official. So any uh, system that is moderate or high has to come through my office. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we have a, a pretty robust governance process to make sure that uh, we're on track of that. So that has stopped the sprawl, uh, and now it's really to focus on uh, let's reduce uh, and consolidate uh, where we can. Some of the reason, I mean, I wish I could have started last year or certainly earlier this year, but this modernization journey has been really, really a lot of work. So 
that's a nice way to say a lot of work. Yes. It's interesting. You, you said you signed an auto memo saying for moderate and high systems, you're now the authorizing official. Do you have the I guess, software asset management capabilities or, or, the, or the configuration management capabilities that says if someone doesn't go through you but connects a moderate system to the network or connects a high system to a cloud, do you get alerted? First of all, they could not do that uh, <laughs> because we we are a centralized uh, IT organization here. So uh, they could not connect through the network without coming through my office. So uh, absolutely. The great news is, though, from a governance standpoint, we are included in the acquisition process and the review process and the <clears throat> planning process. So we don't have to worry about someone acquiring some service and then saying, oh, by the way, we need to do this because we're actually a part of that conversation in the beginning. The reason why you're able to do that is we, you and me, can say it's Fatara, but for them, and waiving a law never seems to work well for for people, but it's, it's a value proposition now that they, they're starting to see the value because of the last six months, because of the efforts you have been working the last few years, they're saying, okay, Jason and his office should be included because they provide value versus they're just waving a law that says, I'm the CIO, I have the authority. Absolutely. And that's key because our customers need to understand not just that it's a law that says we have to do this, but what is the value? The value is speed. And we get to deliver faster cost because we make sure that the cost for providing the service is the least amount to the department that, can, that you know, provides a minimal viable product. When you talk about the consolidation of, of cloud and the service providers, what's the process by which you're going through? Are, are you looking at contracts, and when contracts expire, you're just not going to potentially renew them or, or make the decision which ones you will renew? That is a part of the process. One was understanding and making – we did an inventory to make sure we understood how much cloud do we have. Anything that we can move internal, which meaning that it makes sense to move it internal. If it's cheaper or faster or more secure, we'll move it internal. Uh, however, there are numerous uh, FedRAMP certified cloud service providers out there that can provide fast and secure uh, cloud services. So it's really uh, assessing to make sure we understood what our footprint was, which now we do and we have for a while. And then to your point, it's it's not about going and doing a bunch of contract mods. It's taking a deliberate approach to where it makes sense to transition, much along the same lines as the cloud smart uh, we're making sure that we do it in a, in a smart way, not just trying to you know, move everything for the sake of moving it. I want to just clarify one point you made. You said move internal. Do you mean to an on-premise like kind of data center or do you mean on-premise kind of education cloud? Because of the environment that we're in, we are a contractor-owned, contractor-operated model uh, here, meaning we don't actually – the department doesn't own any data center. So it would be a, a service provider that we've already procured for cloud services. Oh, okay. So the versus having it on the, the quote-unquote public or government-only internet or cloud, cloud platform. Yes. Let's talk about one other party. You mentioned um, website consolidation as well, very similar to cloud, easy to set up a website. A lot of people probably have over the years. And, and basically what you're doing here is saying, let's, again, do an inventory of where the websites live. Can we move them onto a new platform, a single platform? The goal behind that is what? The goal behind that is, is, is twofold. One is the administrative overhead of managing all of that. 
but also it's to reduce our footprint. Because from a security standpoint, if we have, let's say, 200 websites that are that fall within five cloud service providers versus 25 cloud service providers, uh, we have a smaller footprint to, to manage and secure. Uh, same amount of data, but just a smaller number of uh, hosting environments. So the focus is to get down to a much smaller number than 25, uh, just to reduce the, the, the footprint and the, um, the threat vectors that um, potential adversaries can target. Any IT modernization plan kind of builds upon each other. You got you, you laid the foundation. Let's go back to your house analogy for a second. You laid the foundation, right? Things like laptops, things like reducing cloud service providers, and then you can start building out. You can put the extra rooms on, add better windows. What are some of the other areas you're going to go look at and, and decide what comes next over the next you know, 12 to 18 months? Since I've been at the department, I've had five focus areas, uh, number one being cybersecurity, number two being governance, number three being IT modernization, uh, number four being user experience, and number five being organizational health. The focus is really to focus on those areas. From an IT modernization standpoint, as I mentioned, we do have a roadmap that we are following. A lot of renovations and modernization efforts as it relates to cyber, but we did not want to do that in the old environment knowing that we're moving to the new and have moved to the new. So it's going to be enhancing and strengthening the cybersecurity of the department. The user experience, we've revamped our customer relationship management program here so that we can look at ensuring that we're providing better services. Uh, and then, of course, from an organizational health standpoint, it's making sure that, you know, we have high morale, uh, given the fact that we've literally spent, you know, the last, the first part of this year and most of this year actually doing uh, modernization efforts. It's making sure that people understand that the work that they've done is appreciated uh, because we could not have done this without the team that we have here and the support across the entire department that we've had for our modernization efforts. All right, very nice. Jason, let's take a quick break. We can come back. We can jump into those other topics like cybersecurity, maybe data. My guest is Jason Gray, the Education Department's Chief Information Officer. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today, Jason Gray, the Education Department's Chief Information Officer. Jason, before break, we were talking a lot about your, kind of your new set of priorities. One of the things that came up was cybersecurity, so let's go down that path. I know, for instance, your Chief Information Security Officer, Steve Hernandez, has been one of the people that's been out in front and helped leading the zero trust architecture effort and work through the CISO Council and with OMB. So let's start with where education is around cyber. What are some of your parties there? Steven is, uh, is great, and we're glad to have him on the team. One of the – well, I can't speak to some of the things that we're doing. I, I will say that um, one of the things I've spoken about before is our cybersecurity risk scorecard that is continuing to uh, be enhanced. And in short, it provides me near real-time visibility across the entire enterprise in terms of this cybersecurity posture of each system that we have as it relates to the NIST cybersecurity framework. We're incorporating privacy into that as well. So we'll not only have the five areas of the NIST CSF, but we'll also have privacy in there as well in terms of providing the cyber 
brisk posture as it relates to each of the systems. Uh, in terms of the other activities we have going on as it relates to our modernization efforts, we know uh, we have work to do. Uh, we have made a lot of progress. Uh, I look forward to next year's FISMA audit because some of the things we've been waiting to do due to the transition will be realized. So I'm really looking forward to next year's audit uh, as it relates to FISMA. Let's talk a little bit about your the risk scorecard because that's something that obviously uh, a lot of agencies are, are looking at. When you talk about saying privacy is being added, is there a set of measures we'll use kind of very similar to what the IG does and, and, and GAO does around privacy? Is it a different set of measures? How, how do you measure privacy? So, well, I, I can't go into all the specifics. I can share some of them as an example. Uh, if it has PII, obviously that will uh, weigh differently. The amount of PII that it has will weigh differently, whether it's internal or external um, accessible is another. So there's a, a set of criteria. Uh, it is in draft form right now and will, again, continue to evolve and grow from there. But those are some of the metrics that we're looking at. And then, of course, the you know privacy impact assessment, the PTA, those sorts of things as well. Do you also wear the hat of the chief privacy officer for education, or do you have someone that you're working with? Uh, my deputy, Ann Kim, is the senior accountable official for privacy and the current acting chief privacy officer. Walk me through a little bit of the other piece of this is as you use the scorecard to make changes to improve your, your cybersecurity efforts, does it give you kind of the red, green, yellow? Does it break down by numbers, one through five? And then... How do you use it or how do you use it with the deputy secretary and other people day in and day out to to either make decisions or prioritize what needs to get fixed? Uh, so it, it actually there's, – there's four – it uses colors. Uh, it uses uh, four different colors. It's green, uh, blue, uh, yellow, and red. And – uh, what happens is the system gets assessed every uh, month. The scorecard gets updated every month. That scorecard is briefed uh, certainly to the deputy secretary, but also I brief the secretary every month and we walk through. There's also a numeric score so that I can look to see because when you end up getting there, as an example, three is the highest you can get. And as of this month, my uh, IT assets are 2.97. So we're very, very close to a three, which would be green. But uh, it allows me to have the conversation with the secretary, deputy secretary, and the assistant secretaries if for some reason the scores start heading in a different direction, which can happen. As an example, we can have an assessment come in. An assessment team does an annual assessment to see how is this doing, and they maybe find new things. Or, as you're aware, you, we have cyber vulnerabilities that happen uh, in terms of risk, and a new vulnerability comes in. We put in a plan of action, a milestone that adds to the scorecard. So it, it's literally a very dynamic process, but it is used to certainly inform and also uh, enforce, if you will, some of the behaviors that we need. Because if for some reason a system is not uh, is consistently not performing well, that gets leveraged by me to have conversations about. Uh, ATOs and different types of contract actions that can be taken if a system isn't uh, heading to healthier times. So let's clarify one thing as well, because you mentioned that there is um, a monthly assessment, but you get if what what if something happens where system X was assessed on you know December one, but on December fifth 
a new patch gets released or something happens where a zero day is... Okay, is- so two different things. The The update I was talking about to the scorecard is more of an assessment of all the data that we have. We get up- updates all the time on number of vulnerabilities, patch management, where we're at. So when we have critical vulnerabilities, uh, I am aware of it. The system uh, makes sure that things get patched. So it's more of the holistic health of the system that gets updated every month based on different multiple data points. As an example, number of vulnerabilities, number of plan of actions and milestones, uh, number of findings from an annual assessment, perhaps, that is taking place on a system for an authorization to operate, uh, as an example. Well, that's good. I mean, I I didn't think that you were just monthly checking in, but I think it was helped to clarify what the... Yeah, thank you. Where, how you're dealing with the immediate versus the, the broader... I mentioned zero trust at the beginning. Is that something that you guys are also looking, starting to look at internally at, at, at education? Absolutely. And Stephen Hernandez and his team are, are are actively working that. As many people are aware, we are also in the process of transitioning from networks to EIS. So looking forward to the improvements that our transition to EIS is going to bring uh, specifically around zero trust. One of the things you'll do with EIS is, is start to implement those pieces and parts that make up that zero trust framework. Yes. And you brought up EIS. I always have to ask, where, where's education in that process of, of making that transition? We are on schedule. Uh, I mean, it shifted a little bit because of this massive IT transition that we had and we knew. And we coordinated and communicated with GSA uh, that we were expecting. So we are looking at an award early next year. All right. Something to follow up with. And yes. obviously, we'll keep it going. Uh, one of the other pieces that, that I always like to ch- check in with CIOs about is the buzzword of innovation. We hear a lot about it. One of the things that you and I have talked about before is this idea of getting the foundation set, and then that can open the door to innovation. Now that you got through this first six months of IT modernization, do you foresee 2020, 2021 really giving education greater latitude to, to explore stuff, to try stuff out, to bring in some innovation? Absolutely. So one of the things that we have had since I have been at the department is we actually uh, have an acquisition plan specifically around innovation uh, that is funded. It also goes through our governance process to make sure that the governing body, which makes the recommendations to the Investment Review Board, uh, approves the amount of funds that goes into there. Uh, So we do have funding set aside for innovation, and I am looking forward to whatever those projects end up being. I know uh, there's certainly a lot of opportunity given our our massive transition that we just went through. So I'm looking forward to uh, following up with you after those Make some progress. All right. So plenty plenty to follow up on because you have uh, like 10 more years of modernization to go, right? Jason, we're just about out of time before I let you go. I just did want to hit upon the other hat you wear with the CIO Council. You help uh, co-chair the, the Workforce Committee. You guys had a very successful cyber reskilling pilot in, in 2019. Walk me through what 2020 looks like. What are some of the things you guys are looking to do in 2020 and beyond? Two pilots for the Cyber Reskilling Academy, uh, which both went very well. Right now, we're in the process of uh, soliciting ideas because the fiscal year just transitioned. Uh, Dorothy, who's my co-chair, is is awesome. And some of the things we know we will be doing, like the cybersecurity orientation that we do every year, the Federal Women in IT event that we do every year. We've also got looking at the lessons learned as it relates to the cyber reskilling to figure out if there are ways to build kind of a scalable solution that the rest of government can leverage. So there's a lot of other activities we're working on on right now and I look forward to this year and 
what we end up doing. Uh, Jason, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, Unfortunately, we're out of time. So let me thank my guest, Jason Gray, the Education Department's Chief Information Officer. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time. You're welcome. Thanks. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.